0: Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Sherry Elwood, creator and showrunner of new Canadian family drama Feudal about shooting in Nova Scotia under COVID-19 restrictions. And Lion Television US Chief Executive Tony Tackerberry talks about new Smithsonian civil rights documentary Walk Against Fear. Canadian showrunner Sherry Elwood has returned home to Nova Scotia for her latest project, filming the story of a dysfunctional clan of siblings vying for control of their parents' summer resort in the grounds of her own parents' real-life summer resort. She spoke to Michael Pickard about why CBC drama Feudal, billed as shameless Mink Succession, is a love letter to her childhood and how the e 1611 media production maintained the safety of its cast and crew amid the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Feudal is a one-hour dramedy, and it tells the story of the Finley-Cullen uh, clan, um, the dysfunctional family of half-siblings who uh, are battling for control of the uh, yields ancestral resort on the south shore of Nova Scotia. A lot of love, but also a lot of writing.
2: And um, I think you've described this as kind of a semi-autobiographical or, you know, certainly a love letter to perhaps your childhood or your upbringing. Can you tell us a bit more about you know where, where the ideas come from?
1: Yeah, well, um, when I was, approach to think about what kind of a show that I might want to do back in Canada this is a story that I've always wanted to tell because my family does run such a place and we're a big old you know blended family of adult siblings and uh you know my parents are old hippies and uh, they're getting ready to retire and I just thought that was such such ripe terrain to tell the story of how a place even you know one as wacky as this has the ability to draw people back in and you know keep Eternally repeating those same patterns from childhood. Uh, I just thought that was a very rich, you know, tapestry to uh, start to unravel.
2: I mean, and in terms of the the characters and the dynamics between, you know, the family members, can you tell us a bit more about who we're going to be meeting on screen and and how they kind of interact as a family group? But then they've also got, I guess, their own ambitions and interests in in sort of picking up the family mantle.
1: Yeah. Well, our our, our point of view for the show and our, you know, particularly in season one is is Lydia Bennett and. Uh, uh, she's played by the glorious Jennifer Finnegan. And um, she's an architect. And she left home when she was, you know, in her late teens to go to uh, architecture school in New York. And really hasn't been back. I mean, a couple times, she has uh, two teenage children and a husband, uh, Daniel, who is a New Yorker. And they all come back for the uh, funeral of her aunt, Aunt Felicia. And uh, Lydia's drawn back into the family fold uh, when she realizes that you know, Felicia actually owned half the resort and uh, she's inherited it. And it all kind of comes to a head that in those, you know, that short weekend, uh, because, you know, the facade of being fabulous and successful and it's it's really hasn't been working out. Um, Her marriage is falling apart. Um, You know, her son is depressed. Her son Finn is depressed. Um, Her daughter Eleanor is in full rebellion mode. And, um, you know, she sees this as an opportunity to solve her life problem. But of course, you know, create a whole new barrel of problems in the process. Her uh, stepsister, uh, Rianne, has been essentially running the joint single-handedly for many, many years. She never left. And so, you know, Lydia's return is really seen as quite a threat. Rianne has a twin brother, Ryan, played by Tom Stevens the weaker twin who runs the family marina and has, a, has been in and out of rehab you know they say he's been in rehab so many times they've given him a punch card and uh, Lydia's other sister Nora runs the local radio station Cove FM and she's tried to divorce herself from the family but really just serves as a caustic commentator for the uh, shenanigans um, she's really fabulous played, played by Emma Hunter
2: and, and I guess TV viewers won't be unfamiliar I guess with kind of family dynasty kind of sagas on screen, what do you think is it about the setting or these characters you think that kind of will make it pop when it when it comes to air?
3: Well,
1: it's funny. It's 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 kind of a mashup between, you know, a story that is so universal because everybody has a dysfunctional family and, you know, we all, whether we uh, admit to it or not, r- repeat those same dynamics within the family structure when we all get together, whether it's one day at Thanksgiving or like my family all year round, or all summer long, rather. But the thing that I think that makes this show so un- unique is the set We're set on the south shore of Nova Scotia, which is a very particular corner of Canada. I mean, it's not the uh, Canada of jaunty sailing craft and lighthouses. It's very shaggy. It's populated by you know rum runners and old hippies and artists, and it's just a very interesting corner that I've not really uh, experienced anywhere else. So, uh, but also incredibly beautiful. It's just it's it's incredibly beautiful and broken at the same time. So I think that's going to give it really unique list.
2: And and you mentioned uh, at the start that you. Kind of were asked what kind of shows you're interested in. I mean, how how did that, that come about? Then with the production partners, and, and then obviously pitching to CBC, who have picked up the show in Canada. I mean, how did you know the pieces of the puzzle come together at that early stage?
1: Well, I was contacted by Charles Bishop, who is a Canadian producer, but has also worked in LA for many many years, and we kind of knew each other socially, and uh, you know, he knew that CBC was looking for um, an hour long family show. I, I think Charles uh, initially. Thought he was going to be doing, doing something for the seven o'clock audience. And then he came to me and then I said, no, no. I've got a show for you. And we sold it really quickly to CBC. I mean, I think that they were, he he secretly slipped them my uh, pitch because I actually had been you know, noodling away on it for a few years. Like this was my, if I could do one show and uh, they bought it really quickly. I think it was within like 24 hours. They said, yes, let's do this, which was amazing and frightening at the same time. And then I've got a long relationship with E1 from my very early days as a baby writer and I've developed many things for them and worked with them. They also uh, were my partners on Call Me fits. And so I called Jocelyn after, you know, my meeting at the CBC, I was in my taxi on the way to back to the airport, back to LA. And I said, Jocelyn, I have a show for you. And uh, it all came together pretty quickly. It, it's kind of the perfect blend of, you know, supportive studio partners and also the creative freedom to do the show that I want to do.
2: What was that pitch to, to CBC like for them to to buy it so quickly? How how did you kind of showcase your idea to them?
1: It was just a very clear idea. I mean, I think it was I just like I had five pages cobbled together and I said this is the family this is the tone I mean they're very familiar with my writing I you know tend to uh specialize in uh, dysfunctional twisted family dynamics and yeah I mean I you know I, I think there is something kind of appealing about that especially now um I wasn't pitching a dark you know gloomy crime drama although those are amazing too there's depth to this but there's also a lightness and it's just fun I mean it's just really fun because this family is so eccentric and um I think that it's just to desire for a little bit of lightness right now
2: um, but I mean this was all I guess before COVID kind of reared its head. and how did you uh, that's guess-
1: a miracle that's the miracle part because you know full disclosure you know, I've been working in Los Angeles for so many years and I own a summer house here and I said I just I have to the only way I'm ever going to get back to my beloved Nova Scotia is to write a show set in Nova Scotia um, and so I wrote something that was very contained actually it's set on my parents property like sweet little cabins that i'm staying in right now you know it's full-on country right on the ocean but this is a summer business so we couldn't shoot here but there's an enormous amount of land and so we built a replica of the real thing in the shadow yeah so it's crazy you know my mom shows up on set which is bananas because the actress playing my mom they're now front i mean it's it's very meta i don't think i quite anticipated the meta nature of the show but um because it's so contained it was very COVID friendly. I mean, it's, you know, we're shooting on the beach and we're shooting outside and we're shooting in tents and, you know, it's, it's really COVID friendly. And that is just pure accident. It, it really is. Um, you know, all our actors came from all over the country and across the U.S., but they came and they quarantined for two weeks and uh, we're our own little bubble. And um, yeah, we feel very fortunate. It's kind of a miracle. It really is.
2: <laughs> But I guess the writing kind of started before all this and you had the writer's room kind of set up that then had to presumably kind of come apart. But then how did you kind of continue that momentum?
1: Because we were, we were already eight weeks in uh, to the writer's room. And so we and these are writers that I know quite well. You know, I've worked with them before. And so we already had a shorthand. And so we were able to continue to work. By a Zoom, um, which was a little more exhausting than I anticipated, but, uh, you know, we got the job done and we we, we did not have to adjust the creative really at all, which, you know, again, again, wonderful because we had kind of designed this um, little bubble of a show. So yeah, you know, aside from, you know, many of us being like separated as we all kind of traveled here to start production because it was, we we were quite crunched. Our prep was uh, a little shorter than anticipated because, you know, as you probably know, everyone was trying to figure out the insurance. Issues of it all, and no one really knew what COVID was or what the implications were going to be for production. So um, it was a bit of a scramble, but uh, we we to have pulled it together.
2: And I mean, you and you said it sounds like you've, you're blessed with a you know a great location to shoot a show at the moment. But what kind of steps have you had to take to uh, just keep everyone's health at you know the forefront of, of your mind as the showrunner?
1: Well, we're tested a lot. All of our production facilities are you know sanitized within an inch of their lives. Uh, we have a full time staff whose job is just to wipe down handles, things like that. In terms of, uh, you know, intimacy scenes, you know, we were in the fortunate position of our lead actress, uh, Jennifer. I had already kind of pinned uh, Jonathan um, Silverman to play her soon-to-be ex-husband, and he's actually Jennifer's real husband. So we were able to sort of sidestep that little no-kissing loophole. Yeah, and, you know, I talked to the cast quite extensively before we started about their comfort level, and, uh, you know, it all came down to being tested and everyone being safe and. You know, creating our own little uh, internal social structure so that we weren't out running around on weekends and um, potentially bringing Covid to set. I mean we've we've really done everything that we possibly can to keep everybody safe. We're also in the fortunate position that the borders are closed to the maritime provinces in Canada. and so, there's no infection in Nova Scotia right now, which is uh, miraculous and great and hope it stays that way.
2: And just, you know, in terms of you you being the showrunner, I mean, what was that like for you to, to do those writing rooms over Zoom and, and then sort of carry out that, that obviously that important role kind of leading the show, but remotely and, and trying to keep that collaborative nature alive, I guess, <laughs> over Wi-Fi? You
1: know, one of my biggest challenges, I think, was just keeping spirits up, to be honest. Yes. You know, uh, you know, much of the magic of a writer's room is being able to go out and grab a beer, and you know, be in the same room. And trying to replicate that energy over Zoom was a little tricky, to be honest. I mean, I think everyone was so freaked out that uh, just keeping spirits up became another part of my uh, toolkit. <laughs> But they pulled through. They're awesome. They're awesome, and many of them are here with me right now, which is great. You know, I'm like the writing room has wrapped, guys. They're like, we don't care. We're coming anyway, so they're they're here, <laughs> which is amazing.
2: Can you give us, um, I guess, an insight into just how production is going, and and I guess I think you're directing as well. So you know, a bit about the the visual style and and how the show is going to look when we see it.
1: Yeah, we have a oh, we have such a wonderful, gifted director of photography, Nick Haight, um, who is alarmingly young, but. <laughs> Amazing. You know, wh- while this is a comedy, it's a slightened, slightly heightened version of reality, um, sort of my rule of thumb is to shoot the show as grounded as possible, you know, and because it is a summer show, it feels like it's been dipped in honey, you know, lens flares and very natural and it's a little messy in the best possible way. You know, the soundtrack has, you know, helped drive our uh, visual style as well because one of the uh, taglines for the show is, you know, this place was two stars on a good day and that day was in 1979 and so it really is like stepping back. It's a contemporary show but it really is, when you get here, it's like stepping back into a time capsule of Classic Rock and Neil Young and it feels like that. The the, the look and feel of the show is is, is very fitting.
2: And what do your, uh, you know, what do your family make of of the show and your mum walking on set and and seeing a character that's kind of loosely based on her? What are they kind of thinking? No,
1: they've been really good. I've done this before, so they... (laughs) <laughs> I think I've been doing it since I've been a little girl, so they're they're accustomed to it. Um, I was very nervous about this one though because uh, this is kind of my grown up show where we're dealing with real. It's funny, but we're dealing with real family issues and adult addiction and infidelity and uh, it's a fictionalized version of the truth. But they've been really good sports about it.
2: Um, and what do you just make of um, I guess you know the, the Canadian industry at the moment or the TV industry generally and and how people are kind of bouncing back from you know an enforced shutdown? I mean, how do you see things beyond your show rolling out over the next sort of few months?
1: That's a really interesting question. I don't know. You know, I've got other projects in development right now and it's tricky to imagine how they're going to move forward. I just don't know. Industry at large, I know that all my, um, you know, colleagues in Los Angeles, my colleagues on Lucifer specifically, crews and performers are nervous because it's very, with that densely populated city, it's, it's really tricky to control things the way that we're able to do here. I mean, I have no plans on uh, going back anytime soon. It's, uh, yeah, I I would love to do more shows right here exactly where we are right now.
0: Sherry Elwood, creator and showrunner of upcoming CBC drama Feudal. Lion Television US documentary Walk Against Fear premiered on Smithsonian in the US and UK recently. A timely film focused on forgotten civil rights era icon James Meredith. Chief Executive Tony Tackerberry spoke with Clive Whittingham about the story, the production challenges presented by ongoing circumstances, and the uncertainties these mean for the industry. Moving forwards,
3: Tony. Thanks for joining us. You've you've been on before, but you've got a new uh, you've got a new show to tell us about. Uh, let's let's get straight into it and uh, and run us uh, run us through it.
4: Yeah, it's uh, uh, called uh, Walk Against Fear. James Meredith premiering on the Smithsonian Channel, both in the UK and in the US simultaneously. And it's the story of James Meredith, uh, who is a forgotten icon, frankly, of the civil rights era. He was a man. Who single handedly took on the state of Mississippi to exercise his right as he saw it and as the federal government saw it also to enroll in? the big university uh, in uh, Mississippi, Ole Miss. And it was this protracted battle. He made multiple attempts to physically en- enroll. The governor of the state rejected him at every turn. And in the end, and uh, this to some degree was part of James's plan. It's one of the things that make it makes him so remarkable. He sort of forced the issue to the degree that Kennedy, who was president at the time, had to uh, send tens of thousands of federal troops to this little town, Oxford, Mississippi, to protect uh, James and and allow him to exercise his right to enroll. And, he, he, you know, in one fell swoop, he segregated uh, schools in Mississippi. It took a long while for people to follow suit, but it eventually happened. And 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 if that wasn't enough, he, he four years later, began a, a march to bring attention to the absence of voting rights for African Americans in America. He was shot on day two, I think, twice. Went to hospital. Recovered and rejoined the march that Martin Luther King had taken on in his absence, uh, just as it reached the finish line. And you know, those two stories, the incredibly important moments, incredibly important things that uh, at the heart of, uh, of of civil rights. And James was the initiator. James was the originator. James was the guy on his own, single, almost single-handedly, you know, that made these things happen. And um, he's an extraordinary man, and an extraordinary. the true sense of the word. He's quite hard to define. He doesn't fit the traditional mould of a civil rights activist on many levels. Um, he's his own man. I mean, it, that if ever there was a, you know, someone you could describe in that way, it's him. He, he beats, or oh, he moves by the rhythm of his own drum. And, and um, his life is extraordinary. He's an extraordinary chap. He's achieved so much, done plenty of things that are quite hard to understand. And then other things that you sort of feel were, you know, King himself thought of him and what he did is one of the most important aspects of the civil rights movement.
3: So How has uh, this story Uh, landed with your production company is it something that you you've always been fascinated in or when did it when did it come no, to? No, I,
4: I think, like a lot of people, I'd never heard of James Meredith, if, if, if I'm being completely honest, until um, we got a call from the Smithsonian. They had been approached from the filmmaker. The filmmaker is a chap called Sol B. River. He had has known James and developed this incredibly powerful relationship with him for years 15, 20 years perhaps um, and done little bits and pieces with him. And he, he he got in touch with the Smithsonian, said he wanted to tell his story in a long form sense. And this were smitten immediately and just wanted uh, Seoul to have the support of a US-based production company. And they got in touch with us. And honestly, as soon as I got the call, it, I, I, there was no hesitation for me on a, for a variety of reasons. We I came out to the States 17 years ago to make little history films, basically. And for 12, 13 years, we made uh, one of PBS's sort of premier history series, History Detectives. And this was an opportunity to go back, tell more you know historical stories do it in a more blue chip sense and and that for me was an opportunity to go back to our roots in some senses and then the other piece of it and this is this is so this happened last year um so this process has gone on a little while and even without the sort of the timeliness that we I now feel about this project in the current social context it was an important story and one that I felt should be out there the fact that this man is not more broadly known I think is a great shame uh, And and it was a privilege and a pleasure to get the chance to work with soul and support soul to tell that
3: story. You said, you (laughs) mentioned there that it is is incredibly timely with everything that's gone on in the U S over the past three months or so, but, Presumably this was going on before all of that, this this project, this project won't have come together in the last sort of six weeks, I guess. So
4: how how sort of coincidental is that, if you see what I mean? In some ways, it's completely coincidental in that, uh, yeah, we, we started on this project. I have to, it's, it's one of those that, you know, took a little while just, you know, to get the various deals done and all of that. We started at the beginning of last year. So certainly before um, the massive move, BLM movement took hold, as you say, to. Two months ago. So, in that sense, it's a coincidence. I will say the issues that the BLM movement are are highlighting and doing everything they can to to, to rally against have not just started this year. So, it it was still it still felt, felt pretty relevant last year. This is an ongoing, you know, racial injustice uh, in the states is 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 a, not a new issue. Tragically, it's been going on for decades, centuries. Uh, and certainly in, in recent history, it's been an issue. Every year, there are these kind of stories. So in that sense, it was it was even relevant then. But there's no question that telling James's story now, having it come out now in the midst of all of this, adds a degree of relevance and, and importance, frankly, that we, we certainly didn't plan. You know, if you think about what he achieved, what he did, what he stood for, so much of it resonates today. A man going out on a limb to fight for the rights that he believed every man, woman and child should have he, he he even he even doesn't think of it as sort of civil rights he, he almost sort of turns away from the notion of civil rights. His view is, you're an American, you should get everyone's right every right, not just civil rights, not just the, the rights that the establishment say, oh, look, you can have these, but you're not having the rest of these. No, his view is, I'm a citizen, I get all rights. And I think having someone like that stand up in, in such a defining and definitive way it, it is absolutely resonant with what's happening today. And then the other thing that he says, and one of the most striking aspects of the film for me and, and of his point of view is he has a section. So this this March for vote, Voters' Rights, he called the Walk Against Fear. And he talks about fear in a very interesting way and in a very, for me, enlightening way. He talked about in the 60s when, when he was act, most active, when all of this was happening, you know, the, the era of lynching, certainly open lynching, had to some degree passed. But what he felt was almost the most pervasive aspect of life for African-Americans was the fear of things like lynching. So even though the lynching had stopped. The fear of it continued and was an incredible burden that African-Americans have to live with. And uh, I mean, it it doesn't take much at all to see the parallel today, you know, innocent African-Americans being, you know, killed on a regular basis. sure it doesn't happen all the time but the fear of it happening must be ever present and so you know just in those two areas it's just it feels like this is this is such a important film for now with the the BLM movement exploding in the
3: US over the past couple of months presumably there's high demand from broadcasters like Smithsonian PBS and and probably other channels as well for content like this how is this one going to cut through and what makes it unique from the other
4: projects that are going to be out there over the coming weeks and months. I think the biggest uh, way this is this is going to stand out is that we have James Meredith on film. Uh we spent time with him in his home in Mississippi. And the fact that we have this this living icon captured on camera, a man in his 80s who's had who's been shot twice. I just want to reiterate that he was shot t- twice, struck down. And the scene by the way that's it's worth watching the scene when he talks about that and the archive footage that we found of the man that shot him, a white man, who is just, he's shot James. James is on the floor, writhing in pain. The cops have arrived. And this man is just standing there, smoking a big fat cigar, without apparently a care in the world. No handcuffs, nothing. I mean, in the end he he was prosecuted, but it's an extraordinary scene. But I think the fact that we're able to have James on camera, speak for himself, talk about the choices he made, why he made them, talk about his philosophy, talk about how he he had the strength frankly to do some of the things he did and what's wonderful is he and i would had great fortune to meet him um when we were shooting he's this incredibly strong uh dynamic energetic entertaining he's he's a funny guy he's got a sharp sense of humor Uh, And I think, you know, there's so much about the film and the story and the filmmaking that is great. But to have James there to help us walk through, take us on this journey is very special. What have there been
3: challenges putting it together, editing it, shooting it during. Presumably you've been doing that during this year and we all know the uh, COVID and the lockdown restrictions. What what? Were there any particular unique challenges uh, with this one?
4: Yeah, it's funny. I remember talking to you at the beginning of the pandemic and and I think probably sounding quite chipper and positive about, you know, oh yeah we figured out ways and we had figured out ways. We have figured out ways. But on the other end of it, you know, there's no question that y- you can do it, but it's harder. It is harder. And this this fell into the similar category. Fortunately, we'd done all the filming before COVID hit. Um, that was obviously a huge plus. The challenge really here was the fact that it was sort of remote remote upon remote so we're in the states we're in new york sony is in dc the filmmaker soul is in leeds the edit was in leeds but he was remote from the edit so <laughs> that sort of remote upon remote uh, aspect i think was made it harder um no question it always does i think there's there's no substitute we we, we now know if we didn't before for being able to sit in an edit and point to a timeline and say what about that shot there let's change that rather than communicating in other ways. So, uh, but, you know, we got through it and uh, it probably took a little longer as a consequence, but I think uh, it it worked out
3: in the end. And is this, uh, like blue chip history is this this a
4: direction for you guys now or was this was this just a project that that came along and you loved no one of the reasons I think we we leapt at it uh, is because you know because of our history background also crime history and crime docs blue chip or even you know light blue chip are having a little bit of a moment right now and we do so much crime we've done so much history we'd actually before this came along decided that that was wanted we wanted that to be part of our strategy to try and expand into that space it's a natural space for us history is something that's so close to who we are just not only me but the team as i said we spent 12 years delivering you know top rated uh, history show for pbs so uh, this was absolutely uh, something that came at just the right time at the time when we had decided that we want to do more of this kind of thing and and so uh, we've been developing some things and we're much further along in that regard we've got two or three projects at networks and streamers i'd say two two big ones one in a a similar space to this civil civil rights era and another in the crime space that have got a lot of traction and actually are moving forward in in, in sort of fairly significant ways. So this hopefully will be the beginning of Lion in the US doing more of these. And, and, you know, in the end, there's a commercial viability, which is clearly important. But it, at the same time, it's us doing things that we love to do. And I think that's just the perfect connection. Is it the streamers that have
3: opened up, at, like you say, for that commercial viability? For films like this, is it streamers that have sort of
4: opened that market up and made made them popular, or is that just absolutely? You know, yeah, they, they, they were the game. That was the game changers. But but I think this has been going on for a while. Docs are, are, are back in vogue. It certainly began by the streamers hundred percent and now everyone's slightly jumping on that bad wagon everyone wants their you know few big juicy docs to get into and then you look at something like the last dance which was the michael jordan story which i you know was the, you know one just won the emmy uh, for best documentary series that trend of docs having their moment really is not wavering we, we want to be part of that we we can do it and we want to do it
3: you mentioned um that we we spoke at the start of lockdown and i remember i mean everybody was feeling their way through it, but there was talk yeah. of, you know, September, October, it, things can be back to normal and back up and running. There's obviously fairly dire numbers and announcements being made in the UK this week. And the situation in the, in the US is well known. As you look forward forward as you're running a production business now as you're looking forward to 2021 how do you see it? What's it going to look like for for a producer now as opposed to what we thought four or five months ago? I
4: I mean if I'm being completely honest I don't have much of an idea I'm afraid (laughs) and I'm kind of embracing the uncertainty. I I think if you'd asked me this question a month ago I'd have been super bullish. You know I'd have been uh, okay yeah everyone's going to be back on their feet in 21. Back are coming, uh, treatment's getting better, progress, progress, progress. And then that's not the narrative that we're hearing today. Spiking cases all across America, maybe not in New York. New York's in great shape, but the US is, is the cases are going up in really significant ways. Europe, the UK, now lockdown measures or semi-lockdown measures in uh, England and Scotland. It feels to me inevitable that something like that is going to hit here, particularly in the North, in the States. Again, it's cold it's already just this weekend it was really cold being outside living life outside which is the way so many of us have adapted and it feels the safe way to do it, it feels like it's 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 not good. to that's not sustainable in uh, northern winter we all go inside the disease is going to come back. One assumes, and, and that seems to be the prognostications. And so, I don't know. I, I think the most the, the way we're approaching it is honestly without looking ahead too far, because I think. It, and, and by the way, we also have the minor matter of a rather important election in November. So I think there's a lot that's up in the air. I'm trying to just focus on the near term, do the best that we can, and look. It's working out. Funnily enough, we've had a really good. Six weeks of development we sold a bunch of things and i think that's all we can do will we get the chance to produce those and if we do how at this point i'm i can't say i don't think anyone can so just taking it one day at a time being patient trying to be adaptive and keeping focused on just moving forward even incrementally
0: lion television u.s chief executive tony Tackerbury. that's all for this episode there'll be more from the podcast tomorrow But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.